Hey, this is Imaginary Advice. My name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, yeah. Before we get into this month's episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a book that I released just last week. It's... It would be wrong to say that I've written a book, but I have released one. It, it's actually... What I've released is... is Technically, it's an empty book. It's a aligned journal. But at the top of each page, there's a suggested writing prompt or writing exercise. So, so what this is, is a, uh, I'm calling it a, a, a guided writing journal. Now, there's a hundred writing prompts in total. Some of them are, uh, they're based on exercises that I developed during um, my time teaching creative writing. I've now spent um, 20 years working as a creative writing tutor, teaching from kind of five years old on up to senior citizens, schools, prisons, army barracks. And, um, and I should add, whenever I teach creative writing, I don't go into it telling my students that they need to write so that they can go off and become the next literary sensation. I try to sell the merits of regular writing, like keeping a regular writing practice, the same way that I think like a gym teacher encourages regular exercise. Writing is just, it's good for the brain. It helps us remember, it helps us escape, it helps us form new associations and break old ones. I admit, you know, I'm probably biased here, but I really do think that everybody could benefit from keeping your writing journal in their bag. 15 minutes of writing, you know, even if that was just like once a week, just 15 minutes to piss around with some words on the page. I mean, it's made such a difference to me, um, being able to keep a regular writing practice. So yeah, obviously I'm a zealot for this thing, but still, I'm hoping this book can find its audience. It can find the people that are going to get something out of it. All 100 of these writing exercises, they, they all approach writing the same way that imaginary advice does. By which I mean, they don't take themselves too seriously, which has always been uh, a critical part of my teaching approach. I always try to make writing feel like a game that's so stupid that it feels okay to lose. Um, I, I can, Let me give you an example from the book. Okay, I've got, I've got the book right here. Um... So, okay, write a story containing the phrase, that was the day everything changed, at least eight times. Write a story containing the phrase, that was the day everything changed, at least eight times. Or uh, in this one, invent a band, come up with their name and a brief outline of their style, then write A, their discography, B, the track list to one of their albums. Then finally, C, the lyrics to one of their songs. And even though that sounds like a lot, that you can easily do that in 15 minutes. So there are some for stories. There are some that are more guided towards poems. Uh, at one point, I ask you to storyboard an insurance advert. I'm not promising that any of these exercises produce, quote unquote, great writing. But that's really not the point. Right, the finished text is is only to be considered the byproduct of the experience. Anyway, 
you can get this book in hardback and paperback and ebook as well if you just want a copy of the exercises or you live in a country where it won't make it through customs but it's print on demand and there's printers in the uk and the usa and europe and australia so if you're interested it's yeah it's called the imaginary advice guided writing journal you can get it from imaginaryadvice.com forward slash merch where you can also buy t-shirts and mugs finally if you want to help keep the podcast on the air i need your support imaginary advice there's no sponsors no ads it's entirely funded by a small group of listeners and i am incredibly grateful to them because making this show is a full-time job if you would like to join this elite squadron of supporters and help me push back my nervous breakdown by a couple of weeks go to www.patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash ross g sutherland or you can make a one-off donation via buymeacoffee.com forward slash imaginary advice thanks for listening to that i know you've heard it many times before uh okay that's all the things um i have to shield did i say hi hello i hope i said hi um i hope you're well let's begin Side A. I couldn't get a good look at the body. There were a group of us standing in the doorway, and being towards the back, all I could make out was one of Mr. Ivy's hands lying palm up on the tiled floor. Even with me standing at full extension, the rest of Mr. Ivy's body was hidden beyond the doorframe. One hand was all I got. Still, there was no doubt that the hand belonged to Mr. Ivy. Even from the other side of the doorway, I could see it was small, frail, like a little desiccated spider. It was Mr. Ivy, all right. He'd been the oldest of us. Maybe I would have guessed a heart attack if it wasn't for the slow trickle of blood creeping out from behind the door. Dark, thick, rose bloom filling in the spaces between the white tiles. A blood-red grid, extending in all directions like graph paper, surrounding his corpse on all sides, turning Mr. Ivy into some kind of geometric study, mapping him out like a knitting pattern for a particularly gruesome jumper. I pushed forward to get a better look, but Mr. Funt clapped his hand down on my shoulder so hard that I audibly gasped from the pain. Go to your rooms, said Mr. Funt. All of you. The police had already been called, and someone from the constabulary would want to speak with us in due course. In the meantime, we should lock ourselves away and wait, said Mr. Funt. It would be in our best interest, he said. Funt's authority over us remained total. If Mr. Funt had been shaken by the events of this evening, he didn't show it. Not for a second. 
This is what it really means to be a butler, I thought. After all, one doesn't become chief trainer at Castlewood Butler Academy and be anything less than the best. There is always a protocol to follow, even when faced by the unexpected arrival of a corpse. Also, Mr. Funt was 6'3 and built like a post sack. Compliance was ultimately Newtonian. We went where he sent us. Pushed back into the stairwell, the other students and I dutifully dispersed, returning to our lodgings in the East Wing. From my window on the top floor, I watched as police cars trundled up the long driveway towards the Castlewood estate. All night long, I listened to policemen shuffling around the house, banging cupboard doors, coughing into chimneys, searching for what? I'm not sure. A murder weapon, I suppose. Castlewood was a big place, the second largest butler academy in England. The townhouse had once belonged to the Earl of Burke's. It had been his private shooting lodge, apparently. Twelve bedrooms, a hedge maze, an incredible collection of English clocks. So many places to hide things, I thought. The police would have their work cut out for them. If literature is anything to go by, back in the 1930s, any invitation to a country estate came with about a one in ten chance of being stabbed in the night. But this was 1976, for pity's sake. The golden age of murder was long gone, wasn't it? Plus, the Castlewood estate contained enough antiques to warrant a security camera in practically every room. How would anyone even go about such a thing? Sometime around 4am, a policeman came to my door to take a brief statement. I told him what I could, which wasn't much. I should have slept after that, but the morning came so fast. Just after 8am... I opened my door to a tired-looking man in a boxy suit. He looked as if he'd recently lost a lot of weight. When he smiled, I noticed a blue stain in the corner of his mouth where he'd been chewing his pen. Mr Bennington, he said. My name is Detective Collins. I'm with the police. Would you be so kind as to join me and the other guests in the drawing room? It seemed... I was the last to be called. The other trainee butlers were already gathered and waiting. It was comforting to see that I wasn't the only one who'd chosen to wear his butler uniform. Even in my short time at Castlewood, I'd come to rely on my black blazer and tie. Mr. Funt called it our cloak of invisibility. The quickest way, he said to transform a man into furniture and I'd quickly come to see the advantages of such a trick. Though our cohort were yet to officially complete our butler training, I must admit, after last night's incident, we all seemed that much closer to mastering the fine art of invisibility. So much so that entering a room full of butlers felt almost like entering an empty room. Mr. London and Mr. Pascal were almost indiscernible from the tapestry behind them, 
while Mr. Dognus and Miss Ashbury hovered either side of the fireplace, barely casting a shadow. Miss Tinsel had been talking to Mr. Funt as I entered, but either my presence or Collins behind me cut their conversation dead. I took a stool and sat in between my favourite lamp and the hulking body of Chef Minx, hoping, as always, to inhale some of the chef's second-hand smoke. Regrettably, I'd brought no cigs of my own to Castlewood. After all, my enrolment here had come at somewhat of a whim on my part. And now, here I was, trapped in a room with a murderer, I presumed. If ever there were a time for deep breaths, this was it. On Detective Collins' gesture, several uniformed police entered the drawing room and positioned themselves strategically between us. Collins gently closed the drawing room door behind them. After a brief interval where our detective suddenly became extremely interested in the dust on a crystal decanter, Collins eventually raised his eyeline once more, dragging that blue-tinged smile of his from butler to butler one last time. Before the detective had even said a word, I could feel it. The answer hanging in the air above us, like a cloud of poison gas. It was written on his face, clear as day. The mystery had been solved. You've all met me by now, so I won't bother to reintroduce myself. <clears throat> the reason for this gathering is equally self-evident, at least I hope it is. Every civilian in this room right now was witness to the body of Mr. Ivy, found dead in the wine cellar last evening. Irrespective of your involvement in Mr. Ivy's death, that image will likely remain with you in your memory forever. And for the price of that image, every soul in this room deserves to know the truth. You deserve to know how these events came to pass. So you shall. At 8pm yesterday evening, the dead body of Mr. Ivy was discovered on the floor of the wine cellar here at Castlewood. Although we are still waiting for the full coroner's report, it appears that Mr. Ivy was killed by a blunt trauma to the head. Mr. Ivy was last seen alive at dinner at 6pm. Mr. Ivy came through to the dining room to eat. He sat at the dining table, the same as the rest of you. At some point during the meal, somewhere between the fifth and sixth courses, Mr. Funt, your tutor, asked Mr. Ivy to go downstairs to the wine cellar and to bring back two more bottles for the table. Mr. Ivy complied with this request. He left the dining table. He walked downstairs, through the kitchen, into the wine cellar. But this was a journey from which Mr. Ivy did not return. So, what happened to Mr. Ivy inside that room? Security cameras recorded Mr. Ivy entering the wine cellar just after 7.25pm. But, sadly, there is no camera installed inside the wine cellar. On first examination, this scene appears to be 
unknowable, an act of violence placed beyond the boundary of human perception. But yet, I believe, through a process of deductive reasoning, the truth can be uncovered all the same. When it comes to police work, a network of interconnected information can be as material, as conclusive as an incriminating photograph. Perhaps even more conclusive than a photograph, which can always potentially be faked. Whereas logic and reasoning, by its very design, is so rigorously authenticated, each part against the whole, that ultimately its truth becomes unassailable. We must simply consider the facts. At 7.25pm, Mr. Ivy leaves the dining table. He goes downstairs, through the kitchen, and enters the wine cellar, closing the door behind him. At 6.33pm, from their seats in the dining room, Mr. Funt asks Mr. Dogness to also go down to the wine cellar to see what is taking Mr. Ivy so long. Now, this is verified by security cameras. Mr. Dogness goes down into the kitchen to look for Mr. Ivy. However, Mr. Dogness finds the wine cellar door to be locked. He goes to the door, he calls out, wondering if Mr. Ivy is on the other side. There is no response. Mr. Dogness then returns to the dining room, where you are all still present, and relays this information to Mr. Funt. The cellar door is locked, no sign of Mr. Ivy. On hearing of the locked door, Mr. Funt is confused. Now, he may not have verbally articulated his confusion at the time, but you were confused, were you not, Mr. Funt? Yes. And why were you so confused to hear of the locked cellar door, Mr. Funt? It broke years ago. The key to the cellar door broke years ago. Yes. How many years ago did the key break, Mr. Funt? Eighteen years. Eighteen years since the cellar door had a functioning key. Now, this is corroborated by Chef Minx, who told me just minutes ago the story of the grand opening of the Castlewood Butlering Academy. The morning of the grand opening, Chef Minx used that key, the cellar door key, to scrape some mouldy grouting from beneath the kitchen range, which resulted in, what did it result in, Chef Minx? I snapped it. He snapped the key. 18 years ago. The key was never replaced. The cellar door has remained unlocked ever since. 18 years unlocked, and yet, last evening, a new key somehow appeared and locked the door with Mr. Ivy inside, and yet this new key seems to have vanished just as mysteriously as it arrived. Because by the time that Mr. Funt came downstairs to the cellar to investigate the door, the door was unlocked once more. Here's a good question. Did the key ever exist? Maybe Mr. Dogness was pushing the door when he should have been pulling. Maybe the door had been temporarily barricaded from the other side. Two possible answers, yes, but both wrong. The key was real. It existed. 
Even if it only existed for a brief window of time, it existed. This morning, I personally observed metal scoring around the lock consistent with the marks of a recently used brass key. What makes this mystery <laughs> extra perplexing is that the metal scoring was on the inside of the door, the cellar side, suggesting that either Mr. Ivy or his murderer locked themselves into the cellar prior to the attack. Then, after Mr. Ivy was dead, the murderer unlocked the door again before both murderer and key vanished into thin air because if anyone had left the cellar in the brief window of time available, they would have been captured by the kitchen security camera. Now, to return to the timeline. Mr. Funt, having been informed of the locked cellar door, goes downstairs to investigate, followed by Mr. Dogness. Mr. Funt finds the door unlocked. He pushes open the door to discover Mr. Ivy lying dead in a pool of his own blood. Isn't that right, Mr. Funt? Mr. Dogness, on seeing the body, lets out a shrill, childlike scream. Isn't that right, Mr. Dogness? Yes. A scream which brings the rest of you running downstairs to the cellar door where you all witnessed the body. And I have corroborated each of your testimonies. Now, all of you have been living together on the Castlewood estate for nearly three months. You were strangers before coming to this place. I can discern no obvious motive for murder within this room. And yet, I've spent the night scouring the security footage of every room, corridor, and courtyard in Castlewood. And I can find no additional presence, not a single individual hiding around the building. No signs of a break-in or an intruder. In fact, given the remoteness of this location, I don't believe there was a single soul within a five-mile radius of Mr. Ivy except for this present company. And yet, you were all accounted for at the time of the crime. I must admit, <laughs> to begin with, I was stumped. The, uh, the puzzle, it seemed, had defeated me. I knew the missing key was the, uh, well, it was the missing key. Had the room been left unlocked at the time of the murder, the murderer might well have been caught in the act by Mr. Dogness. But somehow the room was magically locked at the precise time the murderer needed it to be. 18 years since the key last turned in that lock. 18 years. Now, <laughs> I have read enough locked room mysteries in my time to know that a puzzle like this always comes down to a simple question of perspective. And this puzzle is no exception. The detective turned to the window, his shadow blocking out the sun. If we accept that the murderer is in this room, and sadly we must, then this leaves only one solution. It's a solution 
so simple. I guarantee every person in this room has already considered it. But having considered it, they will have discarded it. They simply lack the conviction to believe the information they see right in front of them. But the solution remains, nevertheless. And it is this. How has this murder taken place? Simple. Because the murderer has found a way to travel through time. I'm serious. I'm completely serious, Mr. Funt. It is the only solution. Time travel is real. Miss Ashbury let out a single high-pitched laugh, then covered her mouth in shock. Collins shot her a look that could have knocked a bird off a lamppost. Somebody in this room travelled back through time, stole the cellar key from its hook in the kitchen before it was broken by Chef Mink. With that key, now in the murderer's possession, they could ensure total privacy for their horrible deed. They were then free to use time chicanery to simultaneously provide themselves with an alibi whilst also travelling in and out of the wine cellar without detection. They simply entered the wine cellar from a different point in time. Then, at some point, the murderer returned the cellar key back to its original location sometime before 1958. Of course, now that we know that time travel exists, obviously the exact order of events is somewhat moot. Just stop, said Mr. Funt, yanking off his bow tie. For a second, I thought he was about to kick Detective Collins out the window. This is all some sort of sick joke. I'm not bloody laughing. He's a fucking nutter, said Mr. London, which was very unbutler of him. Regardless, the detective seemed unfazed. Now, I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, I am completely serious. If you would just please calm down, calm down and re return to your seats, please. But every butler was already on their feet. Mr. Funt was demanding to speak to his superior, so I asked Mr. Funt if I should get the chief inspector on the phone. With Funt's permission, I marched out to the corridor. Then, once alone, I adjusted the dial on my belt and brought myself back to the present day. I must admit I'd forgotten how little remained of Castlewood in 2052. No furniture, no carpets, no walls actually in some cases. I wasn't sure exactly when the famous Great Fire of Castlewood had occurred, but the house had clearly been gutted for decades. The brickwork was riddled with thick black moss. Lattices of dead ivy reticulated the ceiling. Further down the corridor, a group of ravers were huddled together, inhaling a gas from what looked to me like some sort of drug-filled sombrero. Thankfully, they were too preoccupied to notice that a man dressed as a butler had materialised halfway down the hall. I went over and introduced myself. They were just kids, no more than 16, 17. They gladly sold me a hit of moon dust and... A quick half on the sombrero, and immediately I felt glad to be back in the present day where one can pick up street-level anxiety medication for pretty much any teenager. Towards the end of 
Collins's big speech, I thought my chest was going to explode. My nerves were cutting through me like piano wire. But the moon dust got to work pretty quickly. My breathing eased, the comforting numbness at my fingertips. Once I thought my face had returned to a relatively normal colour, I bid the teenagers farewell and returned to the drawing room behind me. This episode, Locked Room Mystery Side A, was written and produced by me, Ross Sutherland. Additional score was by Jeremy Wormsley. For more of Jeremy's music, go to jeremywormsley.com. You have been listening to Imaginary Advice. Thanks for listening. Till next time.